Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. Michael Failings. I'm your host, Marla. And I'm your host, James. Today, we'll be discussing the paper titled Safety and Efficacy of Reliazol in Acute Spinal Cord Injury Study, a Multicenter Randomized Placebo-Controlled Double-Blind Trial, which was published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in July 2023. This paper was submitted by Asia's Research Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Fellings. Dr. Fellings is a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Toronto. Asia members may also recognize Dr. Fellings as the Apple Award winner from Asia's 2022 Annual Scientific Meeting. Well, it's a pleasure to be a part of this uh, a podcast, and, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to speak with you. Sure, of course. Uh, can you speak a bit about the background of the study, and can you talk about some of like the preclinical trials that led to it? Sure. So, uh, Riliazol is a sodium channel blocker, and it also attenuates calcium influx uh, indirectly through actions of the sodium-calcium exchanger and also serves to attenuate glutamatergic release. And so essentially, Rilizol addresses key mechanisms of ionic and cellular injury that are referred to as excitotoxic injury. The background uh, to this dates back from the 1990s in my laboratory when um, really kind of the first paper that came independently out of my uh, lab was a Journal of Neuroscience publication where we uh, demonstrated the importance uh, that sodium has in uh, producing white matter injury. And then this was followed up by a second paper in Journal of Neuroscience where we showed the linkage between uh, sodium toxicity and uh, subsequent uh, injury to uh, white matter tracts, and in particular to uh, glial cells, including uh, oligodendrocytes. That work then subsequently led to preclinical uh, examinations with a newly developed drug called uh, Riliazol. And Aurelizol at that time was being investigated by myself in models of spinal cord injury and was also being investigated in preclinical models of ALS, specifically looking at um, superoxide dismutase mutant mice that develop um, anterior horn cell injuries, it's a model of ALS. And for various reasons, the sponsoring company, which was Sanofi Aventis, took Riliazol into clinical trials in ALS, but elected not to move this forward in spinal cord injury, mainly because it was felt that in uh, the trials would be more straightforward to do and to interpret in ALS and because of the lethality of that condition. And it, there were subsequently four randomized controlled trials that showed that Riliazol attenuated nerve cell degeneration in ALS, and, and Riliazol subsequently became approved um, as a neuroprotective drug in ALS. It's not a great drug for ALS. ALS, unfortunately, 
continues to um, be a lethal condition in most people, but really is all does slow down the rate of nerve cell degeneration. And then what occurred subsequent to that was that really is all went generic and the drug company uh, was less interested in moving this forward into clinical trials. And so I then launched on the rather challenging task as an academic principal investigator to try to take this from the bench into the clinic. And to uh, help facilitate this work, we did a number of preclinical studies validating the use of Riliazole in various models of, of, um, of spinal cord injury in vivo. And I then had the good fortune of uh, meeting Dr. Robert Grossman, who uh, established the North American Clinical Trials Network, which was funded through the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation with support from the United States Department of Defense. And it was decided by um, investigators in NACTON that really is all was an attractive drug to move forward into clinical trials. And to support that, we first undertook a phase one, two A trial that was also published a number of years ago in January trauma. And this was in 36 subjects that received Riliazole and 36 control spinal cord injury subjects. And it was an open label safety study, but we had a, had a control arm. So we confirmed that Riliazole was safe in people with spinal cord injury. And we showed very promising proof of concept results where it looked like uh, the patients with spinal cord injury that were getting Aurelizol had improved outcomes both on the Asia scale itself and the subset of patients with cervical injuries had an improved trajectory of recovering upper extremity function. So based on this, we decided to launch the phase three randomized control trial. And to do this, we um, had joint support from an international not-for-profit foundation called uh, the AO Foundation, which is based in Switzerland, but has an international presence. And then this was done in partnership also with the US Department of Defense and with the North American Clinical Trials Network. And this, the trial ultimately was undertaken in Canada, mainly out of Toronto, and then out of uh, uh, centers in the United States through the North American Clinical Trials Network. And then we also developed uh, collaborations with spinal cord injury centers in Australia, and uh, that emerged through various reasons. So this is really quite, quite a unique study in that we were doing a major phase three trial without the support of a pharmaceutical company and entirely with peer-reviewed grant foundation support from two separate foundations that we kind of had brought together with the different cultures and so on, and then doing this in three countries on two different continents. So it was really, you know, orchestrating this was, was quite um, uh, significant. And so that's a bit of the background and that kind of leads us up to kind of the initiation of the study and a bit around the background. Mm -hmm. And so with that, can you provide like a brief overview of the study and like its main objectives 
specifically in the context of Rilliazole's use and acute cervical spinal injury? Yes. So what we have learned is that spinal cord injury is very heterogeneous and the recovery trajectories with people with cervical versus thoracic versus thoracolumbar types of injuries, say involving the conus medullaris, are quite different. And um, the clinical readouts are more accurate, if you will, and provide greater depth in, in to assess the cervical spinal cord, uh, mainly because of all the myotomes in the upper extremities that are assessed by the um, scales such as the Asia or Inski scales. In addition, two-thirds of people with spinal cord injuries have cervical injuries, so it's the most common form of injury, and these are the people that have the greatest level of impairment. So for these reasons, we made the difficult but important decision to focus on cervical spinal cord injury. And we found that there were uh, positive effects that were seen in people with thoracic injuries, but because of the different nature of recovery and the readouts, that the sample size required, if we include thoracic patients, would have been in the thousands of patients. So we um, designed a trial for cervical injuries, and then we decided to focus on people with um, a motor complete uh, injury, so an Asia A injury, and then two types of incomplete injuries. One is a motor complete, but a sensory incomplete injury, which is an Asia B injury. And the third is a severe, but motor incomplete injury called an Asia C injury. And then people who have less severe degrees of impairment, they have what's called an Asia D injury. And one of the challenges there, if you include those patients, is that it can be difficult to see treatment effects because you run into ceiling effects. So we focus on Asia A, B, and C. Then the other challenge is the time window to see an effect. And the, the, um, the time window or the basic mechanisms uh, that really is all addresses, so the excitotoxic injury, occur within minutes to hours after the injury. And as best we could determine from the preclinical animal models, the time window in man would be up to about 12 hours after injury. And so we limited the time window of 12 hours. So this was an acute study, which posed quite significant challenges. The dosing, we based on the uh, doses that had been worked out in the ALS population, which is 50 milligrams twice a day. But what we found from our initial phase one, two A study, where we had also looked at pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, was that we needed to um, increase the dose in the first 24 hours, so to load uh, the patient. So we increased the dosing in the first 24 hours to 100 milligrams BID. And then how long to continue the drug for? So based on basic science work and some, some translational work in man, it was felt that the first two weeks after injury would sort of cover the period that can be referred to as the glutamatergic storm after spinal cord injury. And then we, in addition to the phase three trial that we designed, we also included a sub um, study 
which has also been reported in the same issue that our risk of trial was reported in January trauma, which was looking at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. And we also incorporated a biomarker um, assessment. This was done in collaboration with Diana Chow's team at University of uh, Houston. So in terms of the design of the trial, uh, we reported the trial design in the peer-reviewed literature, and the trial was also registered on clinicaltrials.gov. So it was a prospective, uh, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. So we had Riliazole versus placebo, cervical injuries, adults ages 18 to 75. The primary outcome was a, was a joint outcome between upper extremity motor scores and the total motor scores. And then we had a whole host of predetermined secondary outcomes, including lower extremity motor scores, short form 36 quality of life uh, assessments, and so on. And we also had a predetermined sub-analyses um, looking at the differing trajectories of outcome for Asia A, Asia B, and Asia C, because it's been recognized that the baseline Asia grade has an important impact on the ultimate uh, recovery. And then, you know, how, how to determine the sample size. And this was tricky to do. And we based this um, on a previous trial that I'd done looking at the role of surgical timing in spinal cord injury called the Staskis study. And that, that maybe in hindsight wasn't the best data set to use, but it was the one that we had available. So, so long story short, we designed a clinical trial and we estimated that we would need around 300 patients to, to discern a difference in outcome. And then we factored in a bit of a fudge factor to allow for drop of follow-up and so on. And so the ultimate sample size was calculated at 351. Okay, and then the main time point for the analysis was at six months. Patients haven't fully plateaued at six months but they're about 80 to 90% there. And pretty much the outcomes at six months are mirrored at longer-term outcomes. And we did follow the patients out to a year. And then we also did a very careful uh, assessment of the complications and adverse events that were, that were occurring. We also designed a study to allow for what's called an adaptive component and this is where we had pre-planned an interim analysis at two-thirds enrollment and uh, to see whether we were on the right track. Did we have the correct sample size? Were we seeing a positive signal? And so it was designed with that in, um, in mind. So that's about the design of the study. Yeah, the authors note in the study, you talked a lot about, you know, the difficulties, especially in spinal cord injury of, you know, having the same patients find the same population, and you're trying to get to this power of 351 participants, it becomes really difficult. I thought one of the really interesting things that you all discuss is, you know, even though you didn't see a, st a statistically significant increase in the upper extremity motor scores at the 180 days, you note that there was likely some differences in functional outcomes. And you discuss how, you know, in the future, it's important to incorporate the functional outcomes, you know, in, in the analysis, because at the end of the day, that's what we're all here for. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the functional outcomes that you guys looked at or some that you might want to incorporate in the future? 
Yeah, yeah. So there are many lessons to be learned from the trial. The trial was challenging because of this 12-hour time window as well. So the logistics of trying to get patients into your center and then getting them worked up and then getting the consent and getting the drug administered within 12 hours is quite daunting. And so one of the realities of medical systems is that they're more geared toward getting patients with more severe injuries into the centers earlier. And so in our trial, the most common type of an injury was a C4 level Asia A injury, which is the most severe type of an, of an injury. The most common forms of injury, which are Asia C, were actually underrepresented in the trial. We had a large number, but that was an interesting kind of uh, perspective. And um, uh, the other element of the trial, which I should mention, was that we hit the COVID pandemic and, and the trial got shut down for enrollment in uh, April of 2020. And if you can recall, pretty much, you know, the world was sort of shut down and we, were, we got shut down. And then as things started getting ramped up, uh, clinical research was at a lower level of priority to get ramped up versus clinical care. And so ultimately, the decision was made by the sponsors to terminate the trial in 2021, which was a tough decision. We enrolled 193 patients. And so we were below the level that we had pre-calculated. And it's likely that if we would have been able to go another year or two and even probably recruit another 20, 30, 40 patients, we probably would have hit significance on our primary outcomes based on the fragility calculations we've done. But to get to your point around the secondary outcomes, so the first point was that I think what we're learning is that it's probably unrealistic to use the same outcome measure for people with different types of injuries. So people with an Asia A injury, say, versus an Asia C injury. So the trajectories of outcome are going to be different and, you know, how you look at this. And so, you know, so, you know, what are some other things, you know, for example, to be looking at? Well, one is you can look at the level of the injury. So say somebody stays as an Asia A, but say they come in at a C4 level and they end up, let's say, with a C6 or a C7 level. They're still Asia A, but from a functional perspective, they would have gained a number of, um, of levels. So that is an important element, which, which, is, which is significant. Then the other aspect of this is trying to control for the heterogeneity of the assessment. And in one of the secondary analyses that we did, we did a multivariate assessment. So we control for the level of injury, the type of injury, the age of the patient, these sorts of factors. And this is what was used in a secondary analysis. And probably the most striking secondary outcome that we saw was in the Asia C patients, where we did find found statistically significant improvements in the motor scores, upper extremity motor scores, total motor scores, and even lower extremity motor scores. So that was important. What was also interesting was that in the Asia B and the Asia C subjects in particular, we saw a lot of positive um, um, impact on certain secondary quality of life um, outcomes. So, so, so for example, there's an outcome measure called the SKIM or the spinal cord independence measure. And there's a number of subsets looking at SKIM. And we saw several 
positive impacts on the skin. And then we also looked at various methods to examine health-related quality of life. And we found a significant impact on health-related quality of life, probably as a, as a kind of an indirect way to examine the functional impact that these changes have on, on individuals with, you know, with, with spinal cord injury. And so one of the interesting conversations that's now occurring and I recently presented these trial data at the ISRT clinical trials meeting in London. So a lot of interest now in looking at alternative trial designs and alternative uh, methodologies to um, examine these types of data sets. Okay, great. So then looking into the future, what do you hope clinicians will take away from this study and how or when can we find um, these findings basically be translated into improved care and outcomes for those with cervical spinal cord injuries? Yeah, so, you know, in the conclusions to the paper, we had suggested that because spinal cord injury is an orphan condition for which there are currently no accepted neuroprotective treatments, it's acknowledged that some clinicians do use corticosteroids, including methylprednisolone, and it's acknowledged but it's not widely accepted, okay? It's, um, so we're hoping that clinicians might look at the, the data and say, gee, you know, if I have an Asia C cervical cord injured patient, I might consider trying this. And I'm hoping that people will then uh, record their outcomes and that we may see uh, clinical studies coming forward where people will say, okay, you know what, here's my 50 patients with Riluzol, and I had a control group, and this is what the results look like here. So that's one thing I'm, I'm hoping that clinicians might be interested in. And then it's increasingly recognized that to try to make um, recommendations for, for, for treatments, you know, it's hard for the authors, like it's hard for Michael Failings to say, oh, um, team, I think everybody should be using Riluzol. You know, it, it, it's hard to make that comment when you are the author of the paper. There's obviously an inherent bias that's there. But um, I think there's an opportunity potentially for professional societies to examine the results of this and other papers and then make a judgment call and say, you know what, based on this, yeah, this looks like it's a reasonable option. You maybe look at this. Here's where the knowledge gaps are. So I think those are kind of two of the main points going forward. And then the third thing that we're doing now is so when we were reporting the results of the study, you're required to follow your previously published statistical analysis plan. So you can't kind of make it up on the fly and say, oh, I, don't, I didn't like that way. I'm going to come up with a new way to do this. You have to follow the statistical analysis plan. And you're really bound by that, right? But now that the paper has been published and the results are there, there is now the opportunity to start using some alternative statistical approaches and methodologies to try to examine the data set. And so, you know, my group has published on techniques such as the use of um, group-based trajectory modeling to try to model the trajectories of patients. Armin Kurtz group and Emsky has looked at recursive partitioning to try to examine different trajectories of, of outcome of patients. So there's some novel statistical techniques that we're also examining. And then we have, we have currently published one sub-study from Riscus, and uh, that was Diana Chow's uh, paper 
in the same issue. And one of the interesting points there was that we found that uh, Rilyazol seemed to reduce the extent of neurofilament degradation after spinal cord injury. So that was, that was really cool. That was an interesting finding. And we're currently writing up um, another sub-study that we've done in collaboration with uh, Shaker Kapad's group and others. Uh, Shaker Kapad is, at, uh, is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And this is looking at uh, high-resolution MRI imaging so as a surrogate biomarker. So we're hoping that maybe, you know, we might be able to also see some signal on some of these other um, biomarkers. So right now we're we're kind of intensively looking at um, reanalysis of the data sets and then also kind of looking at this um, imaging biomarker substudy. You bring up a great point about trying to get the um, national organizations, you know, involved. So, you know, one of the things as I'm reading the paper, like you mentioned, you're initiating this therapy within 12 hours. And so if we're talking about, you know, myself as a spinal cord injury physician, I'm probably not going to be seeing that person within the first 12 hours. It's going to be the emergency medicine physician. It's going to be maybe neurosurgeon. You know, I thought it was, I thought it said a lot that you published this paper where you did in the journal, you know, um, you know, to get to more neurosurgeons. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe clinicians, um, you know, that are spinal cord injury cl clinicians or people that be, may be seeing this on the back end can maybe communicate these, you know, these, these trials to, you know, our physician colleagues that are really seeing these patients at this time. And, you know, how can we maybe collaborate better to incorporate some of these new uh, these new exciting things in the world of spinal cord injury. Well, Marla, thank you. Well, I think one technique to facilitate knowledge dissemination is what we're doing right now. And I want to thank, I, I want to thank you and the team for allowing me the opportunity to present this. And I'm grateful to the American Spinal Injury Association for having selected our article. So I think that's an important point. And I think Part of this is, you know, having conversations kind of around this, and it's important to have the discussion. So, you know, when a paper is published, it's not the end of the conversation. In some regards, it's the beginning of a new conversation. You know, the paper's been published, and it is what it is, and there's the result. But there's many lessons to be learned, and then also, you know, how do you apply that knowledge? And you know, what does the safety profile look like? And one can have a conversation. So I think one of the appealing things to really is all is that it has an excellent safety profile. It's not very difficult to administer. Uh, it can be administered by paramedics, for example, because it can be uh, delivered in oral form as a, as a pill. So there's some attractive, you know, potential options. This is partly why the U.S. Department of Defense was quite interested in this. And I think there's, you know, potentially... There might be some military applications here where, you know, paramedics in the field in a war zone, if they think that a soldier's, you know, there's been a bad car crash or something and, you know, the soldier, they think, gosh, they might have a cord injury here, take this. Much like a paramedic might give someone nitroglycerin in the field when they, you know, they feel that, you know, they might be having a, uh, a heart attack. So I, I, I think that this is just the beginning of the you know kind of of the conversation and i and i think this is this is maybe what didn't happen before with methylprednisolone i think what happened there was there was so much excitement 
big New England Journal of Medicine paper, you know, again, that, that one also missed the primary outcome, but it had a secondary outcome, but the landscape shifted, right? And I think what needs to occur is there just needs to be a conversation. Okay, you know, we missed the primary outcome here, the secondary outcomes, what do you think? What do you think about the complication profile? You know, is this an option that one might want to, you know, have a look at? Have societies, you know, discuss this and go back and forth and then, you know, where are the next steps? And so, you know, from a personal perspective, I'm hoping that societies will be interested in kind of having these conversations and having, you know, the, the discussions, both in terms of, you know, what lessons have been learned from the study in terms of, you know, how do we get better at, at, at doing studies, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, well, okay, how do we apply the results from this uh, from this trial? Okay, great. Well, looks like that's about time for this episode, but um, thank you for joining us. And thank you, anybody listening, for tuning into today's episode. Hope that everybody found this discussion valuable. Um, and if you enjoyed it, please consider looking at other episodes and feel free to reach out. But until next time, have a great day. And we hope you look more into spinal cord injury. Uh, Dr. Fallings, if there's anything else you'd like to say to close out. That's a great summary and just really pleased to have been involved in this uh, a podcast. And, uh, you know, if anyone is interested in learning more, you know, please contact uh, uh, me. My, my email and contacts are in the uh, article that was uh, published in uh, the recent issue in January Trauma. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Research Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Grau, your producer hosts David McMillan and Marla Petrello, our editor Abby Fox, and production assistant James Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com.